We are now, and if you're visiting, this is just what we do here. We just go through the Bible, one verse at a time, nothing too fancy. It saves uh, the work of having to figure out new topics all the time. Once in a while we'll do that, but this way you just know the next verse is coming. I love it. Um, and, and so after three and a half years or so in the book of Luke, we're already up to chapter 7. And so we're reading the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 7, and I want to entitle this message, When God Reigns, which is synonymous with when the kingdom comes, when God reigns over a people or a place. What happens when God reigns? There's two things in this passage that I want us to notice that happen when God reigns. It says this, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, that's talking about the Sermon on the Plain that we just spent uh, six weeks studying. When he finished the Sermon on the Plain, uh, to giving that teaching to all the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. And the word translated valued highly there, entimus, could, could it be better translated, I think, cared deeply about. Okay, so he cared about this servant. So he sends for Jesus. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So th these, these Jewish elders who had been sent by the centurion, they think that they have to convince Jesus uh, to come to this centurion's house because this guy's a Gentile and Jews don't usually have any relationship with, with Gentiles. And he's also a high-ranking military officer. That's what a centurion was. He, had a, he, he was head of a hundred uh, soldiers. And so most Jews would despise a person like this so the Jews have their, all, their pep talk all planned, and they come and they say, hey, look at, I know he's a centurion, I know he's a Gentile, but he likes Jews. And, and, he, and he's, he, he likes our nation, and he's helped us build a synagogue. Will you come and do us a favor by uh, healing this guy's servant? Now, I don't think that means a thing to Jesus. He's not into this merit theology. Um, but Jesus goes with him. And then he says this. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, this is the centurion talking now. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And turn to the crowd following him. you got to picture Jesus walking from town to town with an entourage of who knows how many people. It could have been a hundred, couple hundred, maybe it was a couple dozen, I don't know. But he turns to this crowd and he says, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. He'd been healed. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, our passion is to be kingdom people, people who are a domain where you reign. And that has certain implications in our life. And this passage teaches us some of those implications. Help us to receive it. Help us not to fall into a fleshy self-protective mechanism. Help us to deal honestly with the text and with the call of the kingdom in our life. And advance your kingdom right here and right now by your power, not mine. By your authority, not mine. By your inspiration, not mine. Just use my words in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. When God reigns. When God reigns, there's two things I want us to notice in this passage that happen. The first thing is that when God reigns, walls come down. 
the thick walls of uh, social hierarchy, so thick walls of social prejudice fall down. You see this happening already in the centurion's life. I, we're not told much about this guy, but he clearly had a kingdom heart. You can see by the way he responds to Jesus. You can see by the way he treats fellow Jews. There was animosity. I mean, thick animosity, intense animosity between Jews and Gentiles on the whole, but especially between Jews and Gentiles who were working for the Roman military. And a centurion was a high-ranking military official. You would not expect any interaction between these two groups. And yet this centurion, surprisingly enough, it says that he didn't disdain the Jewish people that he ruled. Uh, he was the in, present in Palestine as sort of a police force, uh, a military police force. Uh, you know, this was a satellite of the Roman government. He ruled these people, and yet he didn't despise them, and they therefore didn't despise him. Rather, he loved the Jewish nation. It doesn't say that he was a convert to Judaism, but there was something about the Jewish people that he came to love. To the point where he shared some of his wealth to help them build a synagogue. Uh, centurions made about ten times what, what, what average soldiers made, and uh, so they tended to be rather wealthy. Um, and yet he shared that wealth with these Jews to help build a synagogue. Walls of race were already coming down in this man's life. You also see the walls of race coming down in the fact that this man, even though he was a Gentile and even though he was a high-ranking official in the military, he asks a Jewish Messiah to come and pray for his servant. Uh, that's tearing down racial walls. You also see class walls coming down in the centurion's life. As the kingdom that's being unleashed into the world at this time uh, is, is finding footholds in people's hearts, the walls of race and the walls of class come tumbling down. And so the centurion clearly is getting freed from class judgments because he cares about his servant. A lot of centurions wouldn't have even known the names of their servants and certainly wouldn't have cared if they were sick or dying. But this centurion cares. And a servant would have been a couple of classes below the, uh, the centurion that he worked for. He cares about him. You also see the class walls coming down just in light of the fact that the centurion not only is willing to ask a Jew, a, a Jewish Messiah, to come and pray for his servant, but Jesus isn't just a Jew. He's a peasant Jew. He's a lower class Jew. This is a guy without a home. This is a vagabond. He's a nomad. He's a nobody. He's got no wealth to his name. And yet this high-ranking upper-class Gentile is asking this lower-class uh, Jewish person who's in a totally different class to come to his house and help him out. The walls of race and the walls of class were coming down in the centurion's heart. They clearly were already absent in Jesus, and we see this uh, manifested in this passage. Jesus operates in a kingdom that doesn't know race, as is evidenced by the fact that he's willing to stop what he's doing and willing to detour from where he was going to go and help this Gentile. Most Jews of the time, as I said, wouldn't have given the Gentile any mind. Uh, they're, they're, they're just not the race that we're concerned with, but Jesus cares. So he goes to this Gentile's house. The fact that he's going to the Gentile's house and expecting to go inside to pray for this servant also shows just how free of race he was. Because uh, for Jews of the first century to enter into a Gentile's house was to become defiled, to become unclean. There was a, a strong enforced rule about that. But Jesus just doesn't care. 
He's going to this guy's house. He is manifesting a kingdom that doesn't see people and relate to people on the basis of race. He's also free of class. Uh, seeing people in terms of class structure. The fact that this guy was not only a Gentile, but he was a Gentile centurion, a Gentile who was, who was a leader in the Roman government. That put him in a class, the class of the despised. And yet Jesus was willing to go to his house. That could have been seen very easily by other Jews as an act of treason. You're going to go and help out one of the oppressors? And yet Jesus was willing to do it. You also see Jesus completely revolting, revolting against the class structures of his day by virtue of the fact that he takes this centurion, and just, by, just by going to his house, he's being radical. But then he holds this centurion up as a model of faith. In fact, he says, never have I seen such great faith, not even in Israel. Now imagine what the Jews of the time are going to be thinking when they hear this. Because the Jews of the time, they see themselves as God's special people. God's called out one. We're the holy ones. They're the unholy ones. We're on the inside of God's program. They're on the outside of God's program. And, and, and here Jesus holds up one of their oppressors who they despise as having a greater faith than they do. This is the kind of thing that got Jesus killed. He just breaks all the rules. He just doesn't care. And the reason he doesn't care is because he's manifesting the kingdom of God. And whenever there were social rules, social taboos, written or unwritten, whether they were about class or race or even religion, whenever they divided people or dehumanized people or oppressed people, Jesus revolted against them. Because he's manifesting a kingdom that doesn't recognize those things. How can you manifest a kingdom that doesn't recognize those distinctions and those hierarchies without in your own way, pressing against them, revolting against them. Every aspect of Jesus' life was a protest against things that divided people and oppressed people and ranked them in terms of hierarchy. He just broke all the taboos there were to break in the first century, whether they dealt with race, class, or religion. He touched lepers, for example. You weren't supposed to do that. He treated women with respect. In this patriarchal culture, you weren't supposed to do this. He even treated, he spoke to and treated with respect prostitutes. In first century, you weren't supposed to do that. He held up as heroes, even Samaritans. Uh, and in Jewish culture, in decent, uh, well-bred Jewish culture in the first century, you didn't do that. He fed people on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to do that. He healed people on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to do that. He delivered people of demons on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to do that. He hung out with beggars. He hung out with sinners. He treated them as equals. You weren't supposed to do that, especially if you're going to be a well-respected rabbi. There's all sorts of rules. There's all sorts of, of, of social taboos that you're supposed to honor if you're going to be a good, decent Jewish person in the first century. And Jesus just went out of his way to break those. He would have been viewed, in fact, he was viewed, this is how he, why he got killed, as a social protester, a radical revolutionary. He would be viewed very much the way some people in the South viewed those who broke the apartheid rules in, in the late 50s and early 60s when the civil rights movement was coming about. Yeah, there's rules that, about who you're supposed to fellowship with, but they just didn't care. There's rules about where you can eat and where you can't eat and where you're supposed to sit on the bus and where you're not supposed to sit on the bus. But these people just said, that's inhumane, that's indecent, that's not God's will. And so they just didn't abide by those rules. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's living out a radical social protest. It's not a protest of violence. It's not a protest motivated by hatred. 
Uh, it's a protest motivated by his call to manifest what it looks like when human beings live under the reign of God. And what it looks like when human beings reign under the, 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 uh, live under the reign of God is that they form a community and live a life that does not acknowledge the meaningfulness or the relevance of social uh, class, race, or religious distinctions. He lives the kingdom and thereby revolts against everything that's not the kingdom. And that, folks, is what we are called to be. We're called to be revolutionaries. And a revolutionary is someone who revolts. Not out of anger, not out of violence. We love our enemies, but we revolt to manifest the beauty of God's reign, showing what it looks like when God reigns in an individual's life and when God reigns in a community's life. To live out the kingdom of God means minimally that we agree with God's estimation of all people. We agree that every person that we ever come across has unsurpassable worth because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price for them. And to do that means that we, we, we agree with God that uh, there's one human race and it can't be divided up according to class or according to race. And so we live in accordance with that. We don't see the world in terms of class or in terms of race. We certainly don't participate in the structures that reinforce class distinctions and race distinctions that privilege some and, and don't privilege others, which means we live as a form of social protest. We live in revolt against every aspect of this present fallen world that isn't in alignment with God's will. That's part of what Jesus means when he says that my church will be built on the rock of, of the confession of my faith and the gates of hell can't prevail against it because it presupposes that we're storming the gates of hell. We're protesting against the gates of hell. We live a life that manifests God's love and therefore uh, revolts against everything that is not consistent with that love. This never happens by accident and it never happens without a little blood. Everything about the kingdom is about bleeding, which is about sacrifice. It's about being at least inconvenienced. It doesn't happen by accident. Especially on the issue of aspects of society that divide us and, and oppress some while privileging others, uh, it, it doesn't happen by accident because it's so easy to ignore those things, especially if you're one of the ones who benefit from it. Um, our culture is part of the air we breathe. It's part of the water of the fish tank that we swim in. And so it's easy for us not to notice it. And it doesn't mean you have an evil heart. It just means you're not awake to what's really going on in the world around you. If we are going to protest against all the aspects of the, uh, of the world that aren't consistent with the kingdom, we first got to wake up to what's going on. That, that means it doesn't happen by accident. It only happens by intentionality and by a willingness to sacrifice. And it's especially hard for those who are benefactors of the uh, class and race structure. Let me illustrate it by talking very frankly and honestly about race. Race segregation is now outlawed in America, and we can all be thankful for that. Praise God. That didn't happen without a little bleeding. Uh, but as a matter of fact, race issues, race segregation, racist attitude, and racist structures are very much alive and well in the United States. They've just kind of gone stealth. They're a little bit more covert than they, they, they used to be, but they're still alive and well. Never, no place more so than in the church. The average American church is 98% homogenous. It is, in fact, the most segregated institution in America. But many people don't notice it, especially those who benefit from it, and that would be me. Males, uh, white males, white people in general, uh, we tend to benefit from this. Uh, here's a pyramid I want to illustrate this with. 
the pyramid is, is uh, uh, kind of the pyramid of, of, of privilege. Though a lot of us aren't aware of it, there is a hierarchy, uh, mostly unwritten, of, of privilege in our culture. In the top section would be white folks, because our forefathers are the ones who came and conquered this, 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 this continent and, uh, uh, and formed a uh, predominantly white society with, with white structures in it. That means I can move pretty much however I want, and I don't bump up into anything. The farther down the, uh, uh, the pyramid of privilege you go, the more walls you bump into. So for example, I as a white person living in a white-dominated culture, I don't need to be multicultural. But anybody else who wants to succeed in America has to be multicultural. They got to deal with me, but I don't have to deal with them. They, have, they know their own culture, but they've also got to at least be able to navigate white culture. Otherwise, you're just not going to go very far. It's a white-dominated culture. And the farther down you go, the more walls there are to bump into. Now, here's my point. I can maneuver above the walls. That's part of my privilege. I don't need to bump up into anything. And so I might not even know they exist. Or if I know about them, I, I don't know them experientially. They don't, I, I never get impacted by that. But other people do have to bump up uh, against them. I have, as a white person, no idea what it's like to be followed in a grocery store uh, you know, because, uh, because of the color of my skin or to suspect that that might happen or what it's like to be pulled over and, and wonder if this has something to do with the fact that I'm driving in this neighborhood and I have this color skin. I don't know what that's like. I am free to not have to worry about that. But there's plenty of other people who do worry about that. This is why I just read this statistic on, on, on Friday. 6% of white people think that race issues are significant, still significant issues in America. 6%. Just to put that into sort of a perspective. 12% think that Elvis might still be alive. <laughs> I'm serious. It's at least a possibility. So half as many people think that, as think that Elvis might be alive think that race is still a serious issue. By comparison... 69% of African Americans think that race is still a very significant issue. 93% think it is an issue, even if it's not, you know, one of the top uh, two. Um, but there's a wide discrepancy there. 12 times as many African Americans think that race is a serious issue as whites think th there are, uh, or think that it is. Why is that? Well, I don't want to be overly simplistic, but part of the reason is that I never get pinched by it. I, I can operate in a zone where it never affects me. And, uh, but other people do get affected by it. I remember listening to a radio station uh, about a year or so ago, maybe it was longer, which was dealing with, with uh, racial profiling in, in court systems and law offices and, and things of that sort. And it was amazing because there was 27 callers uh, who called in who were white. 26 out of the 27 vehemently denied that there's any racial profiling that goes on in law enforcement in our country. Almost all the people of color who called in thought that it to some degree happens. But all the white folks were saying it doesn't happen. Now what I'm wondering as I'm listening to this is how would you white folks know whether it happens or not? Because it doesn't happen to you. How did I get to be the expert on racial profiling? I'm the last person it would happen to. And see, I might know the statistics out there, but see, statistics are easy to deny and to just say, well, people are twisting this stuff or whatever. The only way that this will ever become a reality to me is if I enter into relationships with people of color uh, who I trust and begin to bump up, 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 enter into solidarity with them and begin to bump up into the same walls they bump into. 
Now there will be revealed to me a world that I otherwise might not have known about. And it's not because I have a racist heart or a prejudiced heart or, or, or an evil heart. It's just because I'm white and, and I, I don't live in that kind of world. There are different worlds out there. And see, we are part of a kingdom that is to be dismantling all walls, dismantling all hierarchies, uh, manifesting the, God's way of looking at people, manifesting what it looks like when God reigns. Amen? And that means we've got to intentionally go out of our way to learn about each other's walls and, and to live in protest against those things, not violently, not with hatred, not making enemies, but just to manifest the beauty of, of God's reign. What does it look like when God reigns? We're called revolutionaries because we revolt, and this is part of what we're to be revolting against. But it only happens intentionally, never happens by accident, and it never happens without some, uh, without some bleeding. Look at how Jesus did it. Uh, I'm convinced that, that yeah, reading books on race are, is good. And I'm convinced going to conferences on, on racism are good. But from my own experience, I'll tell you that, that I knew informationally about all sorts of race issues up until 16 years ago, but I had no idea experientially how thick they were, the contours, how many there were, until I entered into relationships. This is what Jesus does. He enters into relationships with people who are different than him. He goes out of his way to do that. We're seeing him do it here in this passage. Jesus drops what he's doing and, and, and detours from where he was going in order to care about this Gentile, in order to be a bridge to this Gentile. Not just a Gentile, but a Gentile of a despised class. He goes out of his way to do that. And then he goes out of his way to hold up this man's faith as heroic, better than all that he's ever found in Israel. That's going to cost him something. It didn't happen by accident. He was purposeful about this, and it didn't happen without some inconvenience. There's going to be payback on Jesus for holding up this man as a hero of the faith, but he was willing to do it. When you buck the social system, when you buck the, the currents of a culture, you have to know that there are also principalities and powers reinforcing those things. Anything that keeps people dehumanized and divided, there's going to be principalities and powers behind it. And when you buck that, when you revolt against that, there's going to be a price to pay. The kingdom of God is all about being willing to pay that price. Jesus was always willing to pay that price. He lived on purpose with intentionality. For example, most Jews, in fact, Virtually all Jews would avoid going through Samaria. They'd go around Samaria. Why? Because they considered Samaritans to be half-breeds, to be dogs, to be lower class, to be disgusting. Jesus goes out of his way to go right smack through Samaria. Why? Because there are Samaritans there. And he wants to meet some. He wants to hang out with them. Why? Because he wants to put on display a kingdom that's not just about being Jewish. Or it's not just about being white, or it's not just about being Italian or anything. It's about being human, a human being who's loved by God and who's living under the reign of God. So he purposely goes out of his way to encounter people who are going to be non-Jewish. And now you read about this beautiful interaction they had in John chapter 4 that wouldn't have happened if Jesus would have just kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of gone along with the Jewish way of doing life and avoiding Samaria. So it is with us, folks. We are called to manifest in every way, shape, and form possible the beauty of the kingdom of God. And one central element of the kingdom of God, and you find this throughout the whole Bible, and we preached on it a lot around here, one central element is the reunifying, the debabilizing, if you will, of humanity. That's one of the central reasons why Jesus died. It's also the aspect of Jesus' atonement that the church is the worst at manifesting. We are called to intentionally dismantle the walls 
uh, that are out there that divide people and, and privilege some and, while dehumanizing others. But we've got to know that there are strong cultural forces against us. All the more sinister because most of them are invisible, especially to those of us who benefit from them. And this is why the average American church is 98% homogenous. They may say they wish they were more diverse, but unless you're willing to bleed for it, it just does not happen. There's too much else going against you. The kingdom of God only happens when we protest, when we live a life of revolt. The kingdom of God will only begin to happen, this element of the kingdom of God at least, will only happen when we revolt against the norm of saying that it's perfectly normal for, for white people to worship with other white people and black people to worship with other black people and Asians to worship just with Asians and, and Hispanics to worship with other Hispanics. Uh, only when we revolt against that being normal and we say, you know what, the kingdom of God is about bringing us together and, and, and we've got to start sacrificing to make that happen. <laughs> only when we... The kingdom only happens when we revolt against thinking that it's normal to, to go to church just because you like the music that is there or because they, they, they have a style that's comfortable for you and it's convenient for you. As long as that's our default setting, this aspect of the kingdom will completely go by the wayside. It will never happen by accident. If we just default to what is comfortable to us, guaranteed that 25 years from now and 250 years from now, the church will still be 98% homogenous. But that is not God's will. That's not the beauty of the kingdom. That's just normal fallen human society. What God is looking for are some people who will say, I will live the protest. I will revolt against that. I will go out of my way to go through Samaria. The kingdom will only happen when I revolt against the norm that it's perfectly appropriate for me to have all my friends looking just like I look and dressing just like I dress and they happen to like the same kind of music I, I like and they happen to eat the same kind of food that I eat and that's just how I'm comfortable. Yeah, you know what? That's normal for a fallen world but the kingdom brings us a new norm. Amen? There's a new normal in town, folks, and we're called to live by it. And according to this new norm, we are to be mixing it up. Uh, we're to be being stretched. We're to be manifesting the beauty of God's kingdom that does not uh, choose friends and, 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 and choose uh, worship services just based on what's convenient for us or what's comfortable for us. We have to be willing to be inconvenienced and intentional about it. And the place to start is right here at Woodland Hills. Let's get real practical here. Let's, let's put flesh on this. How do we do this? Here's an idea. Let's, I want to propose, just a proposal, but actually I'm preaching at you here as nice as I can. How about if we don't see the service as being a 90-minute service, but we'd rather see it as being a 105-minute service? Let's tack 15 minutes onto it. Uh, and, and, uh, 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 and the other 15 minutes would be spent doing this. If you have children, first go pick up your kids because, you know, we need to honor that. Come back and spend 15 minutes in the gathering area. And then intentionally Get to know people. Intentionally mix it up. Intentionally seek out people who maybe don't look just like you and, and get to know them and welcome them to the church and tell them that you're glad they're here and get to know their names. And if appropriate, go out to lunch afterwards with them and, 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 and just begin to, to, to look at the world from their perspective. Begin to mix it up a little bit. I, I, my heart broke a couple months ago. I heard about a, a, an Asian man who came to church here for over a year and no one introduced themselves to him. And he loved the church but he was really beginning to think that maybe this is, is not a place that really welcomes him because just no one, no one introduced themselves. Thankfully, someone did, and that developed kind of a relationship, and then he got to meet other people, and, and he got you know, more integrated into the church. But that should never be, folks. Uh, look, at Jesus calls us to love one another, to love even our enemies as he loved us and gave his life for us, right? We're supposed to be willing to die for our enemies. We're certainly supposed to be willing to die for those who aren't our enemies. Um, 
Well, here's a step in the right direction. Let's start by being friendly to one another. Uh, just as a first step. Let's just become crazy friendly, weird friendly, I, I, you know, I, and, and, and go out of our way to welcome people who are here. Look, at this is especially, not to pick on white folks, but I am one, so let me pick on myself. This, it, 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 we all have a responsibility to be outrageously friendly, but in this context, there's a special burden that would fall on us white folks. And the reason is because Woodland Hills is a white-dominated church. We're still about 85% white. Um, and, and that means that, that non-white folks who come here can very easily and legitimately have a question. And that is, am I welcome in this place? Uh, is this really a church, this is what the Asian man was wondering, is this really a church that embraces people in their diversity, really welcomes them? Or is this just another one of those many gigs of good-hearted white folks who set the white table and serve the white dinner and ask me to come along and join their whiteness? Uh, I've done that. You know, what I want to know is, is this really going to be a dinner that has its diversity where, 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 where you know, my way of doing the world and my way of doing dinner is brought to the table? And I brought it in on the process, you see? And so there's, a, there's an onus of responsibility that we have to reach out and let people know that, in fact, we're glad they're here. We need them. This is, you know, they, they are certainly welcome here. And, and this is not just a white-run congregation uh, that happens to have a few people of color here, but rather we seek to manifest the beauty of the diverse kingdom of God. And, and, and we want to embrace people in all their, their, their cultural diversity and their ethnicity to put on display the beauty of God. And what really makes this, you know, just to get really honest here, uh, the, the only, it's even more uh, important and, and uh, more of an intense issue because of this. And this is paid with broad strokes, and I don't mean to offend people, but, but here we go. Um, look at, uh, what I've noticed is that on the whole, um, those of us who come from Euro, Scandinavian, Norwegian, you know, kind of climates and cultures, our culture tends to be a little bit more reserved than a lot of other cultures. Have you notice that? Uh, we're just not as overtly friendly. We're, we're, we're not like, you know, we're, we're just like too much properness going on. Uh, a couple months ago, I went to a, a predominantly black church uh, on a Sunday that I had off. And man, I got smothered. I loved it. You know, and, and maybe it was because I was one of like three white folks that were there. Maybe that, you know, I, I don't know if that, but I, the friendliness was incredible. Everyone's like, oh, where are you from? What's your name? Whatever. And, and, and see, I think a lot of cultures are just like that. They're more huggy. They're more touchy. They're more, you know, friendly. And, and I, we're not. And so when people who, could, who come from a more friendly culture come to this church, uh, what's normal for us is unfriendly to them. And so now they're really wondering, gosh, am I really welcome here? And so we need to go overboard to embrace people uh, and, and, and show them that, there are, that they are, are welcome here. Uh, white folks, uh, from white folk to white folk, let me just say this. Maybe part of the kingdom is us uh, having a little bit of revolt, a little bit of rebuke to our Scandinavian stoicism. Uh, just rebuke that thing. And, and we're going to declare to manifest the love and the friendliness of the kingdom of God. Amen? All right. And yeah, you know, that means stepping a little bit outside of our cultural comfort zone, but if the kingdom doesn't at least mean that, then what does the kingdom mean? And maybe we need to revolt against a little bit of this, I put in my 90 minutes of, of religious duty per week and now I'm out of here. No, 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 put in your 105 minutes of religious duty and the last 15 minutes are, are out there. And by the way, there's no religious duty. Uh, this is supposed to be done out of a, out of a love in our heart. Uh, we need to get outside of our individualism and begin to think community. We need to think bridges. We need to expand our horizon, get to know people. We need to mix it up. And we, let's start out in the gathering area. But there's other ways as well. 
To live the kingdom means we have to start to think in terms of a community and a life that simply refuses to acknowledge the class and race and socioeconomic stuff that's going on around us. And it won't happen by accident. So maybe part of the intentionality is this. When you're thinking about going out shopping, why not think about a place where you might encounter people that don't look like you? Go shopping in a different place. Uh, you know, start to think in terms of uh, revolting against the, uh, the, the, the walls of the culture. When you go out to eat, think multicultural. When you go out for a cup of coffee, think multicultural. When, when, when you go out to get a haircut, think multicultural. Just think, why not go to some place that maybe you're going to run into people and have conversations with folks who don't look exactly like you. Just some ideas. I go to the barber shop in my neighborhood, and, and it's a predominantly African-American uh, barber shop. In fact, I've been going there for over a year, and I'm the only white guy I've ever seen there. And I love it. It's just, and though they do a good job, don't you agree that they do a good job? This is, this is called a fade, and it is fading, I'll tell you. But uh, I love it. I mean, it's not like any other barbershop I've ever been to. Uh, you know, first of all, for 15 bucks, the guy spends an hour on my hair. It's like, it's amazing. And we're watching Judge Judy, and we're talking about Judge Judy, and we're mixing it up, and it's just having a blast. I mean, there's so much conversation that goes on there, and uh, I, I just love it. Um, it's helping me remain aware of the kingdom. The default setting is for us to become myopic in our vision, and, and uh, uh, we get barricaded. No, no, no. We, we need to think in terms of diversity, reaching out. Uh, think in terms of diversity in terms of what you eat. Try being more multicultural in the food. Develop a taste for something other than McDonald's, you know, uh, and, and uh, 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 become more, you know, ethnic in, in the restaurants you go to and the food that you eat and the stuff that you drink, maybe the music that you listen to. Try buying a different kind of a tape to expand your horizon. Get out there a little bit. Listen to a different station. And here's an idea. Think about once a week, if you're working downtown especially, but wherever, ride the bus. That's like the most multicultural dimension of American society right there. I guarantee you you'll meet people who don't think exactly like you think and, and, and don't talk exactly like you talk and don't dress exactly like you dress and maybe don't smell exactly like you smell. And man, is that a good thing? Ride the bus. And the final thing I'll say on this is just this. Uh, live on purpose. The kingdom doesn't happen by accident. Live on purpose. It takes intentionality, revolting against status quo stuff that's easily made invisible to us. The American default setting is to say, can I afford it and do I want it? That's the only questions we ask. But to live in the kingdom means we are intentional about doing God's will. So the ultimate question is, God, where do you want me to live? How do you want me to live? And there's no right or wrong answer to that question. As long as you're sincerely seeking first the kingdom of God. No one can judge you. I, 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 you could be living in a multi-million dollar white gated community and I'm not going to have a second thought about that because God needs people out there too. But be open to the possibility that God might tell you to move someplace. It happens. It's happened to dozens of families at Woodland Hills Church. A uh, number of small groups where all of a sudden God, they feel God calling them to move into a more diverse neighborhood or to a more uh, a different socioeconomic neighborhood. And that's part of their ministry. Be open to the possibility of God doing that in your life. However God leads you, just know that it won't happen by accident and it never happens without inconvenience. It takes intentionality and to some degree it takes bleeding. Getting outside of the comfort zone of your own default settings in order to manifesting something that's more beautiful than your singular myopic cultural setting. The second thing, and I'll do this very quickly, promise, that this passage tells us about what happens when God reigns and I can do it quickly because we've covered this a number of times. But it's simply this. Where God reigns, allegiances begin to shift. 
I don't know how the centurion found out about Jesus or what he learned about Jesus, but he had a heart that was open to the kingdom, and therefore the Holy Spirit had room to create a faith in Jesus. And the little bit that he knew about Jesus, there was a faith that was there. When the guy sent out this, 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 his friends to talk to the centurion, they had to recite the very words that he said because he's speaking in the first person singular. And the centurion calls Jesus Lord. Now this is amazing. He calls Jesus Lord. And I'm sure that he could not have possibly known that he was Yahweh, the embodiment of Yahweh, what we mean by Lord. But he had some strong sense of Lord when he calls him that. You need to know that a, a person in the Roman military was only allowed to call someone above them in rank Lord. It was treason to do otherwise. And ultimately, they had a pledge that Caesar is Lord. Here is this Roman centurion pledging lordship to a peasant Jew. That would have been treason in the first century. This man could have gotten killed for saying that. And yet he was willing to do it. He understands what authority is. He says, look at I, I know authority. Okay, I'm under authority and I'm also over, I also am an authority. So I know that you don't have to be here physically for this to happen. My word is, is my command. I tell people to do something and it gets done whether I'm there or not. So if you just say the word, this is his faith here. If you just say the word, I know my servant will be healed. And what he's doing here is he's saying this. I know that I'm a hot shot when it comes to the world, when it comes to politics, when it comes to the military. I got people who listen to me. But you are Lord over nature. A sickness and disease obeys you. Uh, you have, there's a different kind of a kingdom that you're representing. And we're, we're seeing a shifting of allegiance going on as this man calls Jesus and respects him as being Lord. As the kingdom of God is taking root in this centurion's life, the kingdom of the world is being subverted. His allegiance is shifting. And here's my point. That always happens. In the first century and in the 21st century, in Palestine and in America, the more Jesus wins our absolute allegiance and trust, the more our allegiance and trust to everything else begins to wane. To call Jesus Lord means that he is the one and only Lord. He's the ultimate authority in our life, and there are no seconds. There is no competition. To call Jesus Christ Lord means you acknowledge that George Bush may be president of the United States, but he's not Lord. Uh, the Republican Party, you may like it or dislike it, but it's not Lord. The Democratic Party is not Lord. America is not Lord. The American flag is not Lord. And the American way of life is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord and is the only one. Amen. Amen. And you can prefer whatever you like. You can like and dislike whatever you like. Political candidates, political policies, this form of government, that form of government, this flag, that flag, this country, that country, this war, that war. Have whatever opinions you want. But... For God's sake, literally, for God's sake, don't ever put your trust in any of it. Uh, put your trust in Jesus Christ alone because I'll tell you this, wars come and go, nations come and go, politics come and go, politicians come and go, policies come and go, flags come and go. We've had hundreds of wars to end all wars. We've had hundreds of wars that are going to rid the world of evildoers and you know what? They keep on coming back. Don't put your trust in any of that. Our one and only trust is our Lord God Jesus Christ. The hope of the world is found in Jesus Christ. Amen. Because the truth is this, until every knee bows and every tongue conf confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, the evildoers are going to keep, keep on coming back. And you know what? We're part of the evildoers. Uh, and, and until evil is rooted out of the human heart, the, the world's going to keep on cycling the way it's cycling. But the hope of the world is this. It won't always be like this. Jesus Christ will come back. His, his mustard seed kingdom is growing now, and our job is to manifest it. And he's coming back. He'll return the same way he left and then his kingdom will be established and his kingdom will reign forever and ever because his goodness reigns forever and ever. His love reigns forever and ever. And then and only then the world will be the way the world's supposed to be. 
Close your eyes just for a moment here as I give the Holy Spirit a brief moment to seal this message on our heart. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest with ourselves, which is sometimes the most difficult thing. And the question I ask us, and I ask the Holy Spirit to just highlight where we're supposed to take home, is this. Number one, are you intentionally being inconvenienced, if not bleeding, to manifest the beauty of a kingdom in which all are equal? A kingdom in which there is no hierarchy, a kingdom in which there is no class, a kingdom in which there is no race. If the Holy Spirit convicts you on that point, would you just now pledge to seeking God's will about how you are supposed to do that? And it may require bleeding, it may require some inconvenience, but that's the kingdom. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you help it to start in one minute out in the gathering area. Let it be, Lord. Let it be, Lord. Secondly, I, I ask the Holy Spirit to raise up to our awareness what we're supposed to take home here in terms of our allegiances. Is there anything you're trusting too much? Is there any competition to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? Is too much being wagered in a government or an idea, a philosophy, a politician? It's okay to prefer it as opposed to something else. That's fine. But is your trust in Jesus Christ alone? Holy Spirit, convict us if we need to be convicted. And if you are convicted, would you just pledge to shifting all your allegiance to Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he's made you a part of? Lord, let it be. Create in us the, a reality of the kingdom, a vision of the kingdom, the beauty of the kingdom, a commitment to the kingdom. Create in us, Lord God, a willingness to be inconvenienced, to swim upstream in an American culture that in so many respects does not agree with you, does not manifest the beauty of your kingdom. Help us to be revolters of love in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. The altar is open if you want to come forward. Thanks. If you want to come forward for any reason at all, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come on forward here. There'll be some people who'd love to introduce you to the kingdom. If you have any other need you want to have prayed for, come on down and spend some time in prayer. Otherwise, go out and be outrageously friendly. Amen. And